Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're we're going to try to try to tackle uh, uh, Parshas Noah and and maybe approach it from uh, some some new angles that that we haven't uh, discussed up until now. Um, you know, there's a there's a, a fascinating evolution that takes place in terms of righteousness from from Noah to Abraham to Moshe Rabbeinu. And, and I have a, a talk on that, which if you want to see it from that perspective, it's called The Evolution of Righteousness. And that's on Torah on iTunes.com. But what I want to go into more is uh, this time about the, the ark and, and the flood and just the, the implications of starting the world. Remember, Parsha Noach is the second Parsha in the Torah. Starting the Parsha, starting off the Torah... Um, with the creation of the world and then segueing almost immediately into the destruction of the world. What is that saying? And, and you know, I, w- I was thinking, what, what is God trying to communicate to us? And, and just to just look at other aspects, like why wasn't Noah more successful? Because it says, Rashi brings, that one of the reasons why Noah built this ark over 120 years was to engage people from his generation who would ask him, what, what are you doing? And um, why is it that Noah wasn't more successful, seemingly, in terms of uh, inspiring people to maybe re-examine their life and their ways in the world and all the rest? So we're going to look into um, all these different things. But just one thing that, that, that hit me that I want to share with you is that, you know, a lot of times uh, traumatic things happen to us in our own lives. And like, for instance, this flood was, to say the least, a very, very traumatic event. It's it's something that lasted a, a calendar year. And and yet and yet it seems like the essence of it was what's going to take place now that the floodwaters have subsided. And toward that end, there's a there's a gematria to me, a, an absolutely spectacular Gematria that Rabbi Wolfson brings, which is that if you look at the, 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 the verse in the Torah which officially ends the flood, it says in the second month on the 17th day, all the waters of the earth dried up. That's it. That's the end of the flood at that point. The, the rain has stopped. The geysers coming from underground have stopped. All the water has like dried up. The flood is over. So again, the Pusik, the verse in the Torah that says that the flood is over, reads like this. In the second month, on the 17th day, all the waters of the earth dried up. That is the exact gematria, that verse, the exact numerical equivalent of Breshis bara Elohim es HaShemayim Ve'es In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Meaning to say that, in essence, the real, the real story was maybe not so much the flood, but this new beginning that was taking place. And again, to just personalize this and make this real for us in all of our lives, sometimes things happen to us, and I don't know how long they last. Maybe it lasts a moment. Maybe it lasted an hour. Maybe it lasted a period of years or whatever it is. But compared to how much life we have left to live, in terms of the, the decades or whatever it is that we have left in front of us, to spend our entire lives just consumed with the traumatic event, it's very human. And, and we can't be faulted for it. 
But at the same time, it seems that, it seems like it's not the best use of, of, of what's being asked from us, what we're being called upon to address, which is this new beginning. Again, just to make the point, the finishing of the flood correlates with the creation of the world, with these two verses from the Torah. So in other words, after something traumatic happens, the real question is, what are we going to do with this new beginning? Now, I'll tell you something absolutely fascinating. It's a little bit racy in a way. Just because, but this is, you know, if you really look into the sources, the rabbis are, you know, really, they dig very deep in terms of just life. And here's a good example of it. After Noah um, gets off the, the, the ark, and I want to discuss the ark more later and the waters of the ark and what all this means, but um, Noah plants a vineyard. And he gets drunk. So, so, and he falls spiritually. And we're going to talk about the fall in a moment. But what, what was going through his mind by planting this vineyard? So I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Zohar something very amazing, which is that Kabbalistically speaking, we say that the fruit from the tree of knowledge was a grape. That's what, that's what Adam and Chava ate. And by the way, it says that Chava, this is very intense, actually forced the grape into Adam's mouth, right? And for that reason, I've heard as an explanation that when you make Kiddush, the first thing that you say is, Rishus, meaning with your permission. So in other words, the first, the first consumption of the product of the grape was done in a coercive way. And so we begin with this word, Rishus, with your permission. That is very interesting. But this is actually the point. This is the point that I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Zohar. That what Noah was trying to do with this new world, remember this Breshis, this new Breshis, this new beginning that had taken place, was to correct the sin of Adamat Harishon. By planting a vineyard, by planting grapes, he wanted to not make the mistake that Adam had made. To fix the mistake that Adam had made with the grape. But he unleashed this new form of power, this new form of energy, this drunkenness that he was not able to control. And you see many instances of this throughout Torah, which is that people who have tried to basically take on the initial hate, the initial mistake, kind of often get blasted away by that energy. Like another example that's given of this is Korach. Korach, it says, was a, wanted to be a Kohen. He was from the tribe of Levi. And it says there's a prophecy that when Mashiach comes, the Leviim are going to become Kahanim. And so when he wanted to be a Kohen, the more sort of sympathetic view of, of Korach was that he was actually trying to usher in this next ear. So it wasn't just blind ambition, if you will. He, he was trying to, you know, break through. But he got blasted away also. Korach, you know, fell, fell very far, fell very low. So, you see this by Adam also. But now let's get into this medrash, which is like very, very intense. It says that when he was lying drunk in his tent, 
one of his sons came in, and there's a debate as to what this son actually did to him. One opinion is that he sodomized him, sodomized his father. The second opinion is that he castrated him. So this is, you know, you know, if, 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 if those are the choices on the menu, it's like, let's skip to dessert. You know what I'm saying? It's like, uh, I, cho- I, I choose neither. You know, so it's like, so, but, but what is this, what is this trying to, what is this trying to say? So I heard Rabbi Avner Weiss say something very, very, very intense and amazing. He said the following. He said, these are reactions to hopelessness. These are reactions to hopelessness. And I'll go, I'll go further into it, what he said. And just to take a step back for a moment. You know, in popular culture today, in, in the zeitgeist today, one of the things that you see quite a bit on, on television, and in movies for that, that, for that matter, is the post-apocalyptic scenario. Like, for instance, um, some popular shows right now, The Walking Dead, these are like, sort of like a, a zombie invasion uh, on Earth. That's, that's a post-apocalyptic thing. Mad Max, the whole, you know, um, that whole series is, is post-apocalyptic. Right now on TV is a, a new series called um, Revolution by J.J. By Abrams, which is dealing with, you know, when there's no electricity left in the world, that electricity is the most precious thing. There are many, many examples of the post-apocalyptic kind of like landscape. And interestingly, this seems to me, in, in my opinion, the first one that you see recorded. Because after, those are, of course, fiction, but this is real. After the after the exile from the Garden of Eden, which in itself is, this whole world in a way is a post-apocalyptic scenario. But that's such a metaphysical transformation that took place from the Garden of Eden type uh, environs to the this world environs as we know it, that it's a little bit unrelatable. But in terms of staying with the paradigm of this world as we know it, more or less, what took place when, 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 when Noah gets off the ark is totally post-apocalyptic. How do you rebuild this world? And it seems like one of the reactions to the overwhelming challenge of trying to do that would be hopelessness, would be completely overwhelmed. And so Rabbi Weiss says that the sodomizing of, of, of Noah by his son represents hedonism as one reaction. Meaning to say, if hopelessness stands before me, let me just live and let live. I'll just have the best time that I possibly can have. And that, that is the only way to make sense of this predicament that I'm in. So that seems to be one reaction that the Medrash is discussing. The next reaction is this idea of hopelessness, which is symbolized by castration. Meaning to say, how can you perpetuate humanity in a world like this? Like, let's just cut off the generations. Let's just give up, basically. And so, so hopelessness or hedonism or nihilism would be perhaps another way to express this thought of castration. Like, just like, it's just, everything is over. Nothing matters. It's just done. Like, why even try? Why even try? So, so I love that because it just gives you an insight into just how, how deep how deep the Medrash is in terms of just understanding human psychology. But, um, but let's go further. 
Let's go further. You see something in, in the beginning of Noah that thematically I think is very, very striking. It's the opening verse. It says, Ele toldos Noach Noach. And what we have here at the beginning of Parshas Noach is the last person standing who's Noach. So there's one person standing. So I want to say that's the Aleph of the opening of the Parsha. That's Noach, because it's, it's one righteous person who the, the world is going to be perpetuated through. And then the next word of the Parsha begins with the letter Taf. That's the last letter of the Aleph base, Toldos. Meaning to say that we're going from Noach right now, the first two words are hinting at the fact that we're going from the last man standing, from the Aleph, all the way to the top, meaning to say humanity is going to end. We're going from the beginning all the way to the end. And then it says Noach, Noach. Okay, then it gets into the story. What I think is striking about that is this mirror image that you then see at the end of the Parsha. So this is in chapter 11, verse uh, 27 now. And at the end of Parsha's Noach, you have almost the identical words. It says, Ve'ele toldos, terach, terach. So it's very unusual, just so that you should know, that the Torah ever repeats someone's name twice. It, it happens, there, there are instances of it, but it's not common at all. And so you have Noach, Noach in the beginning, and terach, terach. Now who's terach? Terach is Abraham's father. And Terach is a very amazing character that doesn't get much play at all. No one really talks about Terach much. But the sources seem to say that he was on his way to Israel and never made it. And the explanation that I heard was that he was afraid to get out of the closet, so to speak, in terms of his monotheism. Because that was a very radical theology in its day. And to just... Just take a stand that he believed in one God at that point was something that he wasn't quite prepared to do publicly. And so Terach becomes a P.S. to history. But his progeny, Abraham, carries the day till, till Mashiach comes. So now, let's look at this amazing reversal that takes place at the end of Parsha's Noah. Because we go from Terach, which starts with the letter Taf, which means the end... And he gives birth to Abraham, which begins with the letter Aleph. Meaning to say, we get all the way to the end, and then Hashem brings us up to a new beginning with Abraham. And of course, Abraham, the letter Aleph, begins with the letter Aleph. He's the first Jew. And not only that, but he's the one who's restoring monotheism to the world. The notion of the, the understanding of the oneness of God. So, a very nice bit of bookends in terms of what the Torah is doing. And again, just how many levels the Torah is operating on. All the patterns and all the subtlety, all the infinity in the Torah. So, I want to, while we're concentrating on letters, I want to do something else with the letters right now. Noach is a very interesting uh, word. Noach, and we're going to get into this later, actually the Zohar says that the root of Noach, Noach means rest. And if you look at this word, Nachas, this is nachas, like, you know, that's, that's Yiddish. People say, oh, you know, I hope my children give me nachas. That's like the great Jewish parent goal for, the, for their children. 
So nachas is usually translated as pride, but really it means rest, which is kind of interesting. In other words, it's like at a certain point, it's sort of like I can rest now knowing that you're on the proper path. So, so it's, uh, it's interesting because it also suggests that the job of a parent is hard work, constant work. But every once in a while, your child will give you reason to rest because you know that your, that your work is, is, is uh, actually, you know, coming to fruition. Okay. But the Zohar says that, that Noah correlates with Shabbos because Shabbos is the day of rest. And we're going to get into more of the dynamics of that later and what, that, what the implication in terms of the flood is with that in a moment. But what I want to zero in on is the word Noah itself. It says that Noah had a very special quality, and he was saved because of this quality. And that quality is chen. Chen is one of those words that you can't translate so easily. But let's say grace. Let's say it's grace. And it says that Noah was saved because he found chen, grace in the eyes of God. Okay, through his righteousness. His righteousness caused him to exude a certain light. That was really like awesome. Noah was amazing. He was, he was very, very righteous. Very, very holy. Okay. So you want to hear something interesting? So his great quality is Chain, right? Noah, spelled backwards, is Chain. It's the exact same letters. Nun Ches is Noah. Ches Nun is Chain. It's the exact letters. Just reversed. So based on that, I want to say the following teaching, okay? Which is that the, the Talmud says that the goal for a person should be that his outside should be, should, should, should be a reflection of his inside. In other words, your inside and your outside should be the same, Okay? And if you can get to that level, this is really a very, very high, beautiful level. So I want to say that the first letter of Noah, and that Noah's insides were the same as his outsides. So if his insides and his outsides were the same, then when you reverse Noah, you get Cain, and that was his great recommendation to be saved. Because his his inside and his outside was the same. So they were reversible, right? And as such, he achieved the status of Chain, which was his saving grace. Now, by the way, I just want to go into that a little bit further, because there's a striking teaching. I'm always surprised whenever I remember this or see it again, which is Joseph's brothers didn't like him. And it says in the Torah itself that they, that they hardly greeted him, that they, that they weren't especially nice to him. And I saw a commentary that the rabbis praised the brothers. And you think, praise the brothers? And the reason why they praised the brothers is because the brothers weren't being fake. They weren't being two-faced. That, that they didn't like him, and they behaved in a way that showed that they didn't like him. And that on some level that that was commendable. Now, this is not a recommendation to be mean to people who you don't like. That's not, that's not what we learn from this. But what we see here is the, 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 the premium that's put on being real. Like for Reb Shlomo, the highest compliment that he could give someone is, he, say, he would say, that person's for real. 
And being for real really means that your insides are being reflected on the outside. You know, and by the way, the way they learn that out from is an interesting place. It's from the ark which held the Torah. Because it said it was gold on the inside and it was gold on the outside. And that's an appropriate way to be, that your outside should be a reflection of your inside. Because we're all arcs, we're all carrying the Torah. Which will give us a transition to this next thought. Which is, how long did it take for Noah to build the ark? And the answer is, 120 years. Which is the number of years that Moshe lived. Now we know that Noah gets reincarnated into Moshe. So isn't it interesting that, so to speak, the ark, which is an exterior garment, the ark that Noah builds... Is, it's, it's like Noah is building Moshe. Do you hear? Because the ark took 120 years to build. Moshe lived 120 years. And Noah gets reincarnated as Moshe. So, I mean, these correlations are, are, are quite exact and amazing. It's like Noah is building Moshe. And, of course, Moshe gets saved as a baby by being placed in an ark. Right? Because his mother puts him on the, in the ark, and then he gets discovered by Pharaoh's daughter, and gets saved, right? So, many correlations between the life of uh, Noah and Moshe. Um, but anyway, I wa- the, the following thought came to me, and I want to share it with you. It's a big question that the rabbis have. They, they criticize Noah for this, which is that Rashi brings that there are a number of ways that, that Hashem could have saved uh, Noah. So, so um, why did he save him in this way? And seemingly, God really wanted him to be building this ark for 120 years as this conversation piece, if you will, to engage people in the community. They'd say, well, what are you doing? And then he'd say, well, I'm building this ark. What are you building an ark for? Well, because God's going to bring a flood because he's not, you know, he wants people to get it together, basically, and they're not getting it together. And then that way, that would start a conversation about tshuva and, and the role of God and everything like this. So seemingly, Moshe did not reach one person. <laughs> seemingly. He didn't reach one person. So, Noah, I'm sorry. Noah didn't reach one person. So how could that be? So this, I, this popped into my head as a possible answer. Maybe it's because he didn't ask anyone else to build the ark with him. You see, because if you come from a place where you tell someone, it's sort of like, I got it down, but you, I don't need you. Every single person is needed. We literally can't do it without each other. We literally can't do it without each other. This is not like, this is not, what are, you know those sports, there are certain sports where it's one person who plays like tennis, right? Okay, you've got doubles, but for the most part, right, or golf. You know, it's like, it's one person playing. And if that's our consciousness, we're never going to win. This is a team sport. The world is a team sport. Life is a team sport. It has to be all of us together. It has to be. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Why don't we see at the end that, that there are a lot of people building the ark with Moshe? So, or with Noah, I'm sorry. Seemingly, seemingly, perhaps he never asked them. 
And if they all thought, well, listen, you're so great, you can do this without us, so what do you need me for? So, anyway, just a, a thought, possibility, possibility. So, let's get into, um, well, before we get into the, the, the floodwaters and everything like this, I want to go back to this um, idea that when the flood ended, that this verse talking about the ending of the flood is the exact numerical equivalent of the creation of the world itself, of Breshis. And you all know that I love Breshis, right? And that's kind of any excuse to go back to Breshis, I'll, I'll take in a second. So, so, so I saw a couple more teachings on Breshis, um, and, and I want to share them with you. So, one thing is that uh, just this idea of new beginnings, okay? So, this is a thought that came to me, and you've got to kind of visualize it, okay? Because this takes strong visualization, but hopefully you'll be able to do it. So, we're talking about the base of Breshis, okay? Because really, in my opinion, you can balance the entire Torah on the word Breshis, and you can balance the word Breshis on the base of Breshis, the first letter of Breshis. So let's talk about the first letter of Breshis for a moment. So we'll get to it in a moment, but, but we have to arrive on it by way of a, maybe a, a surprising teaching that you'll see how I'm going to relate this in a moment from the Rambam. So the Rambam says that when you go to sleep, you should go to sleep on your left side. Okay? And then you should wake up on your right side. Okay, and that's, you go to sleep on your left side, this is because of, it aids digestion, he felt, he was a, one of the great early physicians, and anyway, so, so the idea is you're going to sleep on your left side, right, that's the side where most of us put on our tefillin, if you want to just visualize it better, and then you wake up on your right side. So I want you to give an interpretation of that, which is that, you see, a person has to live with the future ahead of them. And a lot of ways that people go through life is, they just bring the past into their present, the past into their present, the past into their present. And so, they're never facing forward. They're never actually dealing with the future. They're just pulling the past into their present. A person has to turn around and actually face the future. And so, I think on, on a very deep level, perhaps the Rambam is is speaking to this point. When you go to sleep, you go to sleep facing one direction. But when you wake up, you have to face a new direction. Meaning to say the future is in front of me and the past is now behind me. Yesterday and my past is now behind me. Now I'm waking up facing the new day in a new direction. The future is in front of me. Now with that in mind, listen to this. The letter Bayes is pointing to on the, on the right side. <laughs> Meaning to say, the letter Bayes of Breshis, remember Breshis means with beginnings, that every single moment of life is a new beginning, that the world is made out of beginnings. So the very first letter of the Torah is facing on the right side, like the Rambam says, how you have to wake up each morning facing the future. So, in other words, the, the Torah itself is pointing to what one's attitude about life has to be. 
to face the future, right? To understand that everything is a new beginning. Okay, hopefully you, you, you got that and you see that in the way Rishis, the days of Rishis is facing. Now, I saw a teaching from the Vilna Gon, and it's collected in this book, which I highly recommend everyone have. It's an excellent, excellent book. It's called The Torah Treasury, and Art Scroll puts it out, um, the Tobias Heller edition. There's a, an, an amazing amount of great teachings in this. And, um, and the Vilna Gon made an acronym for the word Breshis, meaning to say he assigned a word to stand for each of the letters of Breshis. Now, before I tell you what it is, let's just take a moment to appreciate, A, you know, like kids will do these type of poems where it's sort of like they'll do, you know, happy birthday. The H will stand for, you know, whatever. Acrostic. Yeah, an acrostic, you know, and then the A will stand for apples, right? So, so we could all figure out words that correlate with the letters of Rashi's, right? But this is the Vilna Gaon, okay? This is, this is the Vilna Gaon doing this. This isn't just us trying to, okay, what starts with the days? What do you got? What do you got? You know, this is the Vilna Gaon doing it. The, the next point is, is that no one asked the Vilna Gaon to do this. He didn't have to give a speech at, you know, a Shalashudas, and it's like, oh, what I, okay, I'll, I'll assign words to Rashi's. So he did this because he felt like this was true, that this was what the Torah is actually saying. Okay, so with that in mind, let's take this very seriously. So for the letter Bayes, and I'll go through it, it's, he assigns the value, the word betachon. Betachon means faith. Right? And it will go through the other letters. Resh, Ratzon, will or desire, the desire to do the, to do the will of God. Aleph, Ava, love. Shin, very surprising, to me anyway. You know what, you know what Shin stands for? Shtika, which means silence. Fascinating. The Yud, Yira, meaning awe. Because here you see within Breshis we have Ava and Yira. We have both, right? Love and awe, which are called the two wings of the dove, right? In order to fly and to be spiritually balanced, one has to have Yira and Ava, awe and love. And then the tough stands for Torah. So, so let's go back to this idea that the, that the Torah is balancing on the word Breshis, and Breshis is balancing on the first letter, the base of Breshis. So what's the Torah balancing on? In other words, if it's standing on one leg, so to speak, on one pillar, what's it standing on? Betachon, faith. And there's, and if you think about it, it, it's really true because we, we live in a world where ultimately, ultimately nothing can really be proved. If you keep on asking questions. But why, 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 you can, you can always say why after someone gives you an explanation. It's, it's limitless. You, so, so at a certain point, and, and there's, a, there's a story about the, the, the spiritual collapse of one of the great sages. It's one of the tragic stories in the Talmud named Elisha ben Abuya. 
otherwise known as Acher, who was one of the greatest sages, a contemporary of Rabbi Akiva, who just spiritually completely collapsed and fell apart. And um, there's a novelization about his, his collapse. And, and, and what they talk about in, in this novel form, whether this is true or whether it was just the author's hypothesis, I don't know. But, but it's, it's a very interesting thing. They say that he, because we know that he was very uh, enamored with the Greeks and with Greek thought. And that ultimately unraveled his own, uh, his own system. And what he wanted to find, uh, according to the author, was a, 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 a system of belief that would correlate with geometric proofs. Meaning to say that everything that he believed could correlate with an exact logical progression. And that nothing was left to the realm of belief. And, and he meets a, one of these traveling Greek sort of like philosophers uh, who blows his mind, basically, and gets him thinking about all this stuff. And then later on in life, after he abandons Torah, he meets this philosopher again. And he's so happy because this person had changed his life with this chance encounter. And he asks him to, to do that proof again, which had blown his mind so much. And so it says, the way they narrate it in the book anyway, they, he, the, the man takes out his, you know, his walking stick and he's drawing on the sand you know, this proof. And he begins with the premise. And Alicia Benabuya says, but how do we know that's true? And he goes, well, no, that's the given. That's, that's what we're starting with. He goes, no, but how do we know that's true? And the guy says, you're crazy. And he basically has a breakdown in front of the guy because he realizes... That there is no premise. There is no premise that doesn't necessitate a level of belief in the premise itself. That you can't ultimately ask why to the premise of. So I say to, I say to you, okay, well, let's start with the most tangible premise that there can be. You exist. How do I know that I exist? Because you're right here. How do I know that I'm right here? Because I'm talking to you. How do I know that it's you? How do I know that these are words? How do I know this isn't a dream? How, uh, you, you realize that if you delve deeply enough, <laughs> that, that nothing is real. That there is no bottom. There is no rock-solid foundation to anything. So even the most logical Greek system has to begin with some kind of premise. So then he realized that I threw away everything for your system, which requires belief in a premise. When I had a system also that was fantastic. So, so the letter B, so the Torah, which is the blueprint of existence, begins with the letter Bays and the Vilna Gon. The Vilna Gon says that that Bays stands for Betachon, faith. Because ultimately, you can't make any progress, you can't make any breakthrough at all, unless you've got some sort of foundation. And ultimately, it's got to be built on faith. Ultimately, it does. No matter how rigorously logical that you want to be. So, so that's, that's, that's quite striking, I think. That's quite, quite striking. And there's proof from it in the Torah itself. Because the Talmud, and this is something that came to me, I'm sure the Vilna Gon, it was so obvious to him he didn't include it, but the, 
the Talmud goes through a system where they, where they say, how can you narrow down all of Torah into progressively smaller, smaller, smaller principles? And so they find this passage in Tanakh where, where I, I can't quote it by heart, where, where different great people in Torah have said these three things or these seven things are given a list of qualities. And they progressively narrow it down till they get to Chavakuk, who's, who's one of the quote-unquote later prophets. And in chapter 2, verse 4, he sums everything up into one principle. And the Talmud, the Gomorrah, says that this is the ultimate distillation of, of the Torah path. Okay? So chapter 2, verse 4, and it's these words... And the tzaddik lives by his faith. That's it. When, when all is said and done, that's it. That, they just boil it all down to one thing. That's it. That's the base of Rashi's, right there. Um, so, so let me talk to you about the waters of the flood right now. And this is from Rabbi Wolfson, something very interesting. So, how did it work exactly? How did we, how did, how did Noah survive the flood? So, he brings a source, the Mizrahi, which says something very interesting. Which is, he says that all the constellations, all the stars basically got shut off. That it was basically just darkness. And so, that's a big question, like, why did God do that? Why did God on some level, suspend or in some way cancel creation. We know that a new beginning was happening. That, that's clear to us. But, but to this extent, what did, the suns, what did the sun and the stars do? Like, why turn those off? But according to the Mizrahi, those were shut off? Okay. During, I'm sorry? It was just cloudy. <laughs> no, no, it was done. It just the off switch hit, off. So it's darkness, it's this void that Noah is in. So, so, so what, what Rabbi Wolfson develops, and I'll just say it in, in, in a sentence, a very kind of dramatic explanation of the, of the spiritual forces that were actually uh, being enacted. You see, we said that Noah, the Zohar says that Noah's root was Shabbos. And one of the prayers that we say, if you have a sitter that's Nusach Sfard, I think Nusach Ari also has it. Uh, Erev Shabbos, right as Shabbos is coming in, we say Kegavna. It's a famous kind of prayer, beautiful prayer. It's a, from the Zohar. And it talks about that when Shabbos comes, all of the negative energies... All the negative energies, like, go away. That Shabbos comes and cancels them all out. And so, what Rabbi Wolfson says is that what happened was, Noah, who represents Shabbos, that as he was going through, all of the negative, because he says, how could it be, just on a basic level, that the waters of the flood didn't eat away at the ship? They were hot waters. They were boiling waters at a certain point. Why didn't they melt the tar on the boat and just completely consume the boat? How could the boat have survived in these waters? So what he says is, is that because Noah was the embodiment of Shabbos, 
that what he did was he pushed, spiritually speaking, all of the negative forces away from him. And that this is why the constellations, all the stars were shut off, because God kept it Shabbos. God brought this energy of Shabbos, and because the stars were not advancing the days of the week, it stayed Shabbos during the entirety of the flood. So that the Paichas, the, the spiritual power of Noah, would be at its height. So that's, that's a very amazing understanding of the, the dynamics of the flood and the boat and everything like this. So, so let's make it real. And then I just uh, want to end with a story. Uh, we've all had pain in our lives and everything like this. But at a certain point, the point is not what we went through. It's, it's what's in front of us. And, you know, I heard Rabbi Sitran say, he said, I'm, I'm only half joking when I say this, but when Noah got off the boat, he said that Noah needed a drink. You know, after that trauma, he needed a drink. And, you know, I heard Yehuda Solomon from the Moshav say that Reb Shlomo used to say to the kids on the Moshav all the time, you know something, if you fall, you can sit on the ground for a couple of minutes, but then you've got to get back up. You've got to get back up, you know. You can't be a member of the licking my wounds for the rest of my life club. It's like, you know, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So, so, so if Noah, and I think maybe to return to the first question that I asked, what is going on? Parsha's Breshis, God creates the world. The next Parsha, God destroys the world, right? But that's not the point. The point is, God begins the world again. It's right, okay, you've got your dreams, the dreams didn't work out, now what? Not, 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 I, not, okay, once upon a time I had dreams, then my dreams fell apart, the end. No, that's no. <laughs> No, then we turn the page and it says chapter two. <laughs> right? No, there's a lot of pages left in that book. A lot of pages left in that book. Now what? Now what? Now you're looking at, and I think that that's really deep. That God is teaching us something really deep about the nature of life. You know, it's sort of like you've got your braces, but then you know what? Hello, Noah. Now what? And, uh, and so let me just uh, tell you this story. So Erev Shabbos on the 3rd of Cheshvan is the yurtzeit of the Rizhina Rebbe. The Rizhina Rebbe is one of the greatest Hasidic masters. One of the greats of the greats. And in a lot of ways he was the dean of the Rebbe's at the time. All the Rebbe's came to the, the Heliger Rizhina, the Holy Rizhina. And um, he was a direct descendant from King David and a direct descendant, a great-grandson of the Magid of Mezrich, and um, really restored the, the, the concept of malchus, of kingship to the Jewish people. 
and he had a, an incredible life, and there's tons and tons written by him and about him. But um, this one story, I really feel, expresses all of life. I feel like all of life is contained in this story that I'm going to tell you. And I just, uh, I want to share it with you because I really prize it, okay? So, the original Rebbe had a bunch of sons. I don't know how many. Four, five, six, something like this. And they all became Rebbe's. Each one became a Rebbe. The, the, uh, the Sadagora Rebbe, the Biana Rebbe, the Chortkover Rebbe. There's a whole line, a whole family of Rebbe's that came from the original Rebbe. So, so one, of the, one of the sons who became a Rebbe was the Chortkover Rebbe. Uh, Reb David Moshe of Chortkover. Okay? So he was a little boy, like really little, like three or something like this. And there's a chassid waiting to see his father, the Rebbe. And the chassid is completely broken. His life is mamish falling apart. It's falling apart. And the little boy comes up to him and he says to him, what's the matter? And this, this chassid says, I need a Yeshua, I need a salvation, you know, like he's so broken, right? So it comes his turn, he goes in to see the Rebbe, so he sees the Rishner, and he comes out and his face is all lit up. And the young short cover Rebbe, who's just a little boy, says to him, what did my father say? And the Chassid said, your father said, Hashem will help. And the boy says to him, what are you going to do until then? And the man's face falls. And he says, go in and ask my father. And so he goes in and the man comes out and he's smiling and beaming again. And the boy says, what did, what did, what did, what did my father say? And the man says, your father said, until Hashem helps, Hashem will help. <laughs> All right. Have, have a great week. Let's, let, let's begin again again. And, and, and know that until Hashem helps, Hashem is constantly helping. Yeah.